benders and non-benders alike. Welcome to Braving the Elements, Nickelodeon's podcast about all things Avatarverse. I'm Janet Varney. And I'm Dante Bosco. And this week's episode is a very special one for us, definitely covering something, well, someone that's very near and dear to in my heart and I think all of our hearts. Yes, buddy. Yes, indeed. This is an episode that we absolutely knew we would do really from like the inception of Braving the Elements. We knew we wanted to do it. We wanted, of course, to time it out appropriately. And we're finally at the point of our second season where it sort of makes the most sense to take this whole episode to pay tribute to that beloved actor who voiced Uncle Iroh. Of course, we are talking about Mako. I make a solemn vow, as I always do when we talk about Mako or Iroh, yeah. to try not to cry. Wish tear me bend. luck. Wish me I'm luck. I'm sure there's going to be some tear bending in this episode. Yeah. And we yeah. also wanted to have some of our friends to share the memories and the love. So we are super delighted to welcome back our two dads, Mike DiMartino and Brian Canesco, and one of our favorite human beings in the whole wide world, voice director legend Andrea Romano. Uh, so welcome, everybody. All of our parents are in the room with us, Barney. <laughs> our two dads and our mom. Wow. How about that? <laughs> I love that. Hello, everybody. So good it's to be so with you. It's so great to have you. Mike, we haven't seen you in a minute. It's great to have you back on the podcast. Hey, I'm happy to be back. I'm glad you had me back. I didn't botch it the last time, so that's good. <laughs> we really wanted you to sweat it out. Brian, of course, missed it, so he was back straight away. But we really wanted you to sit on it for a little while. And uh... <laughs> I appreciate that. No, we're so happy to have you here. This is an episode that, like we said, you know, we've really been looking forward to. And we took a little bit of a break from our crying. You guys really put us through a lot in season two as we near the end of the season. And already with Appa and Appa's Lost Days. And then we have, of course, the beautiful tales of Bossing Say. We had to take kind of a comic relief episode just to sort of breathe and like shake everything out and feel the joy of the show and you know cover a couple of other things and then we really wanted to make sure to pay tribute to Mako so we can't wait to hear some of your thoughts and memories we thought we might just go ahead and start out you know there may be those of you who know and love Iroh but maybe haven't done a deep dive into who Mako was as a person so before we get into the Iroh of everything, uh, we wanted to just share a little bit about Mako's life because he just had an amazing life, an amazing yeah. history, and came from an amazing place and, and extraordinary parents and has had wonderful kids. And so we just wanted to take a second to, to celebrate some of that as well. So just um, to take you into it, everybody, uh, Makoto Iwamatsu was born in Kobe, Japan in 1933. His parents were authors, anti-war activists. They were dissidents. They were artists. Uh, his dad, Taro, and his mom, Mitsu Yashima, uh, they went to the U.S. in 1939. That was before World War II broke out because they wanted to avoid being conscripted into the Japanese army. And they remained there. They remained in the United States until the end of the war when they were granted residency. And for those of you who know a little bit about World War II and the Japanese experience in the United States, which was not great, um, I'm happy to say that the Yashimis lived in, uh, on the East Coast. So they were not interned during the war, as many Japanese citizens were, in particular on the West Coast. Um, they actually worked for the U.S. Office of War Information. Now, Mako, who had been living with his grandmother in Japan, ended up joining his parents in New York in 1949. He studied architecture there. He then enlisted in the Navy and was in the Navy from 1953 to 1955. He served in Korea and Japan. And while he was doing that, he performed in plays 
to entertain his fellow soldiers. Wow. And so we see this love for the theater and for performance really blossoming there. And he ended up leaving the Navy and went on to study at the Pasadena Community Playhouse. And that's really where you start to see this true love of theater and performing come into his professional life. Dante, why don't you tell us a little bit about the East-West Players, because that's yeah. such a great part of his I story. Know. Well, in 1965, Mako and six others, including uh, another Avatar alum, James Hong, legendary yes. James Hong, yes. were increasingly getting frustrated by how few opportunities and roles Asian actors were getting in Hollywood and beyond. So they formed the East-West Players Theater Company, one of the earliest Asian-American theater organizations that not only provided a place for Asian-American actors to train and perform, but fostered the work of Asian-American playwrights. Maka was the artistic director of Eastwood Players until 1989, which is also a theater that I grew up in going to, of course, watch plays, but also be in plays there and write. I wrote my first play at Eastwood Players, so it's been a part of the whole Asian-American, just artistic community since I can remember, since I got to town, you know? I love that so much. What was the play that you wrote? I wrote a play called Midnight Makeout Session. <laughs> uh, yeah, I love it. It's, it's actually a really great play. We had all, a lot of sold out nights. Um, of course you did. Okay, yeah, it's a great play. It might come back, you guys. It might come back. Let's revive it on the podcast. It's a must. Uh, that's amazing. And I know we talked a little bit about the East West players. Andrea, when you were last on the podcast, I don't know if you remember that, but that was something that you actually brought up about Mako as well. Um, so here he is being the artistic director of the East West players. He's doing all of that, but he was also nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. And he also yeah, got yes. a Golden Globe nomination for his role as Pohan in the film The Sand Pebbles. In 1976, on Broadway, he originated the roles of the reciter, the shogun, and the Chicago-based inventor of the rickshaw in Stephen Sondheim's musical Pacific Overtures, and went ahead and got nominated for a Tony Award for Best Leading Actor in a Musical for that. I think they lost to, um, it would have been supporting actor, right? So it would have been the guy who played oh, right. the professor's friend. Right. But they lost to him. And Jerry Orbach, who I love, was also Mako's landlord, which is an amazing, like, life in New York story, was also nominated that year. And I guess he was heard to be, like, screaming across the theater when it went to a commercial break, like, what the? Like, what? how did we lose, <laughs> buddy? This is crazy. So I <laughs> love that little tidbit. Um, so, and then in 1994, also, he received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. So he was a very, very busy, very prolific artist. Yes. And for me also, he's in Conan the Barbarian. Oh, I mean, for sure. <laughs> like, if you want to list Conan some other films Barbarian. he's famous for, he's, you know, he's worked with, like, contemporaries like Jackie Chan. And, so you know, many. he was... He's, like, one of the most prolific Asian actors in Hollywood in the last hundred years. And of course, a big shout out to Mako's wife and family. Mako's wife is Shizuka Hoshi, is also a renowned actor, appearing in films like Memoirs of a Geisha and Butterfly, episodes of MASH and Sony Moore. And his two daughters are also actors. It's basically like Asian American performance royalty is, is who yes. we're talking about when we're talking about Mako and his family. And and again, I just love the artistic background of his parents as well. Um as many of you know, Mako passed away in July of 2006. He was 72. He had esophageal cancer, um, and he was very, very, very much missed by the entire family at Avatar. He had just recorded 
uh, voice work for uh, the TMNT, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movies. He completed that. And so he played Splinter and, and the film came out after he had passed and they dedicated the finished film to Mako. So and you all know what the end of the tales of Bossing Say looks like and, and how it ends. So that's just a little background on Mako above and beyond his work on Avatar. Dante, talk to us. God, no, it's just so, so wild to think back. I mean, I've known Mako since I was 12. And I don't know if I knew who, who he was at 12. <laughs> he was, I did a, the first movie I did was called Perfect Weapon. And he kind of, I'm the street kid and he plays like my, my uncle. Like, like he takes me and becomes like in my uncle figure and giving me all his advice. And of course, I keep messing up to the film. And what's crazy, it's very, you know, has it's the earliest Zuko, Uncle Iroh, like feels you can get if you watch yeah. that film. And then later on, he plays my father again in a movie called Riot. And it, he's just, you start to understand how legendary this guy is. And of course, the movie is like, like I'm a kid, so Conan and different things I saw him in. But then he becomes this older, you know, statesman, mm-hmm. uh, if you will, that I kind of see at events or I will get to work with him. And I, you know, always get to touch base with him. And he'll ask me how my career is going, what's going on, what are you working on? And then, you know, we get to do this amazing project together, Avatar The Last Airbender, and honored to be like his last project. And we had such a great time. Just our relationship, I think, through the years came out in those characters. And he would even turn to me sometimes, like, I'd love to play this on screen with you. Mm. He would say that, like, we would talk like about that on breaks. And I was like, yeah, that'd be great, man. Because we've had this kind of like father, uncle, son relationship for, at that point, you know, almost 20 years. Sure. Names? Of course we have names. I'm Lee, and this is my uncle, uh, Mushi. Yes, my nephew was named after his father, so we just call him Junior. And he just would give me advice, not just on just career and stuff. You know, he would talk about the hustle even at his age, the hustle hmm. of the industry, and just keeping my mind like, you know, talking about other things of what you're doing and what you should push for. Like, hey, I'm still doing it. And it was just a kind of inspiration in that way. And then, you know, it, it killed us all. I mean, when he was getting sick and we were all in the studio in the booth and seeing him go through certain things. And I, and I talked about the story after he passed and we, we just watched Bossing Say recently and you see that and it, it, the audience that didn't know him, it gives people just tears. And for oh, us yeah. that knew him, it really hits hard. And I remember when, I mean, there's this thing when he, after he passed away, and I don't, I don't, Mike, Brian, Andrea, if you guys remember this, you guys put Greg in the other room and we were all in the in the one big room and Greg was in the small room at Nickelodeon and he had passed away. The, the episode after he passed away, he didn't have any lines and I was just doing lines to, to uncle in the cell and he wasn't, he wasn't there. He didn't speak and which is very emotional. And then when Greg came in, we couldn't see him and I think he opened his mouth and started speaking and we all started crying. I was crying. I looked up, Andre, you were crying and we were just in I the booth crying. like, oh my goodness. It was, it was crazy. It was like he was talking from the grave, but he's, he's just a legend and he's still a legend. And even in his passing, cause I grew up through East West players. He still was uncle Iowa to me. That's when I started producing Asian American films and started my production company. Hmm. It was still the lesson from Mako and from Iroh. Like, it becomes a time in your life where it's not just about you. It's about paying it forward to the next generation. It's about creating mm-hmm. something, about creating uh, help furthering the voice of our community. And like that is so connected to Mako and East West players and me becoming a, a producer and a director and, and making solely Asian American films 
is directly related to Mako. So I can't say enough about him. There were so many wonderful things about that man. First of all, we were so fortunate to even get him to be on our show. I just felt like we were blessed that when offered the role, he said yes. And as you say, he was like royalty, but he yeah. never had any kind of attitude like that in the session. Everybody knew who he was. Everybody was perfectly aware of his, you know, remarkable resume at that point. But he he was so humble and and real and honest in those sessions. And, you know, I'm sure we'll speak more about this as we go on today, but that particular episode you speak of where the, that one episode that was filled with shorts, all of the shorts were wonderful, but that particular one with Mako where he sings. And yeah. to kind of bring this all around, as we were doing that session, and Mike, you may remember some of the story because I've forgotten some of it, but I remember um, we spoke about, you know, are you comfortable singing this? And we'd sent him the music in advance and he was ready to do it. And he said, you know, I, I'm really not a singer. And and I said, but didn't you do Pacific Overtures on Broadway? And he said, yes, but, you know, right up until the very, to the opening night, he kept saying to Sondheim, are you sure you have the right guy? <laughs> I'm not sure I can do this. I think he was literally terrified. Sure opening night that he wasn't going to be able to pull it off. And I think the show starts with something he had to sing or something, but he was, do you remember the story at all, Mike? Do you remember what he said about it? I remember him saying that he was, that Sondheim had to like boost him almost <laughs> to get him on stage opening night. Do you remember? Yeah, that I don't all, Mike? remember the specific Broadway story. Cause, uh, but I remember, cause actually that, that episode with where he's singing, you know, to his son's grave, like that wasn't the first time he sang in Avatar. So season one, yeah, he sang there earlier. was an episode right. sure. that I had written and I, and I'm also not a songwriter. And it was like the first and probably only time I ever wrote lyrics for <laughs> Avatar. But it's like Iroh on the boat just having music night and he's singing that like, Kind of like a yes. love song, winter. Spring, I remember I was standing right next to him, and he hated it, Mike. He's like, he looked at me. <laughs> yeah, no, and I remember that's what I remember. I this. And I'm like looking at him. <laughs> yeah, because like, I remember that coming up then when he was like, oh, I can't, I don't know how to sing this thing, and then, and then of course he did, and it was amazing. Winter, spring, summer. So then after that, we're like, well, Mako's an amazing singer. We got to give him more songs, <laughs> which I'm sure he's well, not like, happy no. about. But. but the thing about the the song that he sings, that incredibly sad song to his dead son, um, is the best singer in the world, the most profound, uh, talented singer, could not have done a better job than what yeah. Mako did with that song. Yeah. You know, I remember during the record, positively weeping. I mean, how could you be in the room and listen to somebody give that much acting energy to a piece like that and not be touched. If you aren't touched, then something's wrong with you. But he, he I, I remember it took me a while to regroup after he sang to even like hit the talk back and speak because I was absolutely overwhelmed by his performance. And then I just watched it again last night and wept 
wept, as I wept many times through season two as I watched it over the last few days. Yeah. When we lose Appa, we can't find what's going on. Everybody's so sad. There's so there's many reasons to weep during that season. But here's the thing I, I want to say about Mako and his performance was, and, and why his role was so effective and why he was so effective in the role, is he was essentially comic relief for a great deal of the show. And we needed that because there was a lot of action and adventure that took place during the series. But what that did was when he did have something serious to say, whether it was training or just life lessons for Zuko, and and specifically this episode we're speaking about where he he cries, it's so effective. It, it means so much because when you listen to the music of his voice, I'm not talking about singing, I just mean the, the way he patterned his speech for that series specifically, it lends itself to comedy. But when that is turned on to a much more emotional level, it's really effective. It was mm. very touching. I think I went into the studio, the recording studio afterwards, just to hug him after he recorded that song, because it was like, I, I need that physical contact with that much emotion. It was quite remarkable. Leaves from the vine Falling so slow Like fragile, tiny shells Drifting in the foam Little soldier Come marching home, brave soldier boy, comes marching home. It's funny that you say that he was comedic relief, because that wasn't really our initial concept for the character. Uh, when Mike and I were in development, we've said this before, but we thought of him as more of a stern sort of you know, like Sifu, like he was going to be right. like, not an uncaring one, but sort of providing some discipline for this mm -hmm. kind of wayward, troubled teen, you know, and uh, Aaron saw him as a this sort of retiree who was just maybe it had once been the badass had once been the, the stern guy, but, Dragon of the West. but it was like just looking towards his golden ears and, and wanted to take a load off. But then Mako just brought so much warmth to that character. Mm -hmm. But he really had comedic chops. I mean, his, oh, yeah. his comedic timing was great. And yeah, another one of the songs, the, you know, it's a long, long way to bossing say. Like, you know, <laughs> like his, his singing and it's a long, long way to Ba Sing Se, but the girls in the city, they look so pretty. Yeah, comedic chops were great there, but <laughs> it's funny because, I mean, he was good at everything he did, but the moments that really stand out, I think, is when he showed his range and that scene in Lake Laogai in, in the second season oh, yeah. where he really let Zuko have it. Like, by this time, you've heard, like you said, a lot of his life lessons. He tries gently to give Zuko guidance, you know, because obviously Zuko's father was such a harsh, unforgiving person influence on his life. So, you know, Iroh was always trying to lead Zuko in a better way through being gentle and, and right. you know, kind of persuasive in that way. But when he just lets him have it, when Zuko oh. finds Appa and like right off the bat, like he's got this edge to his voice and he's being really like sarcastic. And, oh, who's behind that mask? And the way he amps it up 
and he has so many levels to go to. Um, all of his performances were fantastic, but I just love hearing that range because he could be so silly, but not in a cartoony way. Just in a really like no, no, real I, way. I it felt like a real that. character. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Absolutely. And yet, you know, I know that Mako w- was in on the joke. He got it, but he didn't play the joke. He never yeah. played the humor. He just played the reality and it came out funny because the moments would call for that. But I, I loved his ability to, well, it was just great when we all worked together and did ensemble records. That was pure heaven. He had a great appreciation for this series, I thought, and uh, a great um Appreciation for all the actors, for the producers, for the art, for the writing. He he really didn't take it for granted, and I thought that was quite wonderful. Yeah, yeah. To to back up to like how how we got him in the first place, because it it all was very serendipitous in a way. Because when we were trying to cast the show and just trying to find Asian actors and stuff, like just looked to movies we'd seen and stuff, and and like you said, he was kind of a legend because I knew who he was just because I'd seen films with him in it, you know? And, and so when Brian and I were like tossing ideas around of like who could voice him, um, I don't remember exactly how his name came up, but it was one that w- we both were like, oh yeah, he's an awesome actor. And he'd been in some Kung Fu movies as well. I, I it was Bulletproof Monk. It was the Chow yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah. It was 2003, you know? We had just, yeah. you and I had gone Fresh. to see it because like we were just gobbling up any like Kung Fu stuff, you know, especially coming to like theaters. So yeah, that refreshed. But me. I remember, like, yeah, we we had asked, like, oh, can we, are <laughs> in our naive young producer way, like, oh, can we audition this guy? And they're like, yeah, he's <laughs> he's offer only. And we're like, oh, okay, uh, well, well, can we offer it to him then? <laughs> so that was. And it, he said so. Yes. In a way, yeah, it was like we were just like, sure, why not? He seems amazing, <laughs> and sure enough, he was. He so did you ever was. hear anyone else read? those lines before Mako? No. The no, first time I don't you ever heard them aloud. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, he was, he was the first character. person we went after and he thankfully agreed to the role. And then, yeah, yeah I don't remember. Well, I guess Dante, you would have been already because you were cast in the pilot. So you were already, you know, but I don't think certainly at that time we didn't know you had worked with them previously. And yeah, at all. yeah. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, we, you know, it's just one of those things. We just in the same circles and we, when we saw each other the first day, it's like, Hey, you know, <laughs> oh, Marco's good to see you. It's like family. I mean, the, the Lake Guy episode. I just watched it also recently, and it's so striking when he when he lays into Zuko. Mm-hmm. And even when I was watching it again, it's. I mean, the range, like you said, Brian's crazy, but it just I just had like flashbacks of 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 other scenes and moments I've had with him where he's like that strong, and yeah. I was like, oh, whoa! I was not expecting him to 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 be that but it's so perfect but there's that like you said with your on screen and behind the you know camera relationship with him there's he's angry he's frustrated he's disappointed but it's full of love like that anger yeah. you, and you can feel Absolutely. it like it it's like he's yelling because he cares so much about this kid and um yeah i i just i also remember that we it's obviously so tragic when, you know, we, we all lost him, but just the serendipity of how long it takes to f- finish post-production on, or even production and post-production, you know, between when we record an actor and then when we, you know, mix and do color correction on an episode can be nine, 10 months apart or even more. Um, mm-hmm. But we, 
the timing just worked out that in that Tales of Bossing Say episode, we were able to do a little on-screen tribute, you know, for him. Yeah. Um, that made me cry too. Yeah. It, it, that was <laughs> the, the episode to do it, you know, like if Absolutely. we were going to do it. And it was, I do remember it was kind of down to the wire, but we, we all discussed like, Hey, I th- you know, we think this would be a good time to do it. And, and we were able to, to get that into post. So I'm so glad. I'm so glad. Well worth it. I think for a lot of people, this show is kind of their first introduction to what happens when you lose a beloved cast member on a show, how you move forward, if you move forward, how it's handled, what happens behind the scenes, how emotional it is for everyone. And I think, you know, in a way, just and I'm saying this again from the experience of of Dante and I doing so many cons together and, and talking together, not just about Cora, but about Avatar The Last Airbender and getting to know the series as already having been a fan, but then getting to know it even on a deeper level from young people who had just found the show or who grew up with it. But I feel like the intensity of the show and the maturity of the show deepened with his passing. And I'm not saying I'm glad it happened, of course, not by any stretch of the imagination, but there is something that people respond to that it almost galvanizes that character for them more. And, you know, it kind of makes sense in a way that this is a show that teaches so many young people about values and about morals and about honor and redemption and having to kind of process a real-world loss. You've sort of been giving them the tools to do that all the way up until and beyond Mako's passing. So for me, those things are so deeply connected now that I think it kind of helped a lot of young people sort of understand loss in a way that wasn't so direct, but that still was very profound for them. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, I don't know. I never thought of it like that, but I think it's a great point. It's another level to the show and the audience that grew up with it that is something, obviously, who could have planned that? But I think it it, it adds a definite wrinkle to it. And you say... You say those who grew up with the show, but the truth is I just met a, a neighbor recently that I've seen forever, but never really met and chatted. The little eight-year-old girl is a huge Avatar oh. fan. So she oh, yeah. only recently became familiar with it, but she, I mean, she, her mother couldn't wait to scroll, scroll through her phone to show me the picture of her and her Katara costume Yay. that she made for her because she's such a huge fan. So, I mean, it speaks so much to the show's quality really a quality show you always want to have a show that's an evergreen but this is you can absolutely tell that we all loved it when we were making it we loved it i mean it was a hard show to make no question but it was uh, an effort of absolute love and and there was it was a huge following when it first came out and then i think we spoke about this before when the pandemic first hit it was like nickelodeon's number one show it just yeah. everybody watching it. And then now, even more recently, a little eight-year-old girl just watched it and fell in love with it. And so these lessons you speak of, and, and there are many lessons to be learned in this show, um, it's appealing to kids now as well. And that's and this is a kid who doesn't watch TV. Her parents let her watch a few things on Netflix, mm-hmm. but she's crazy in love with Avatar. <laughs> crazy in love with Avatar. I did too. It made wonderful. me really happy. I wanted to ask you guys, Mike and Brian, just going back to the kind of character of Iroh and his development, because we don't know very much about 
Iroh's history. We just have these little hints as we go through book one. We get a little bit more in book two, but that's very much not unlike Zuko and his backstory with his mom and all of that. Like you parse that out very scrupulously. Like you're, you know what I mean? It's not this thing that just sort of unfolds every episode till you have this huge knowledge of every moment of Iroh's life before he was traveling with Zuko. How much did you guys kind of fine tune why he was the way he was and what had happened to his son as you were kind of first incepting the show. We're still discovering things about Iroh. So mm, I will say answer. like these characters, <laughs> like, answer. like always, um, you know, we start with an idea and a kind of general backstory of where they came from and why they're in this story. And, you know, some characters, you know, more about than others, but, you know, certainly his was a, a story. We, we had the broad strokes of like, he was this, you know, legendary general, now retired, now stuck on this boat with his nephew and, uh, you know, had a contentious history with his brother and his family. You don't really know, you know, but certainly through the, as with everything on Avatar, like, you know, in the writer's room and over the years, we got deeper into it, uh, depending on the story and what we needed to reveal. And then, but then, you know, coming back years later to, to work on more Avatar stories, you know, we're, we're still, talking about Iroh and his family yeah, and, you know, what made him tick and, and all that stuff. So that's the cool thing about these characters. I think they are so layered that you can keep coming back to them and discovering new things about them. Um, even in the context of what you already know, like we're not like changing his past. We're just digging deeper. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's always nice to leave a little mystery, you know, and, sure. and, um, mm-hmm. The all the writers, but like especially Tim Hedrick was so great at writing Iroisms, you know, just these just just dropping this these knowledge bombs, these wisdom bombs. <laughs> and what's great is that you get the sense from his character that that knowledge was earned. It's not yes, just something he yes. read in a book, you know, it was yes. this is like there was our original conception of the character and then there's the one that was developed with Aaron and with Mako. And what I like is that both are accurate. It's just, there's more layers and there's who he was and who he's become. And, and yeah, I, you get the idea that he is a person worthy of giving advice because he started in a very different place. You know, I know there's a lot of discussion about, the, the not so good stuff about Iroh and, and, you know, the, the side of the war that he was on. Um, but that's what I find really interesting about characters is you're, you're, you don't choose where you're born. You don't choose what family you're in. And, you know, his character in particular had the weight of an entire country on his shoulders and was, yeah. was sort of forced into battle and was, um, I find it more valuable to have a character who, goes through an arc, you know, gains the self-awareness, realizes this is not me. This is not what I want. And this isn't what he wanted ultimately for the Fire Nation. And that's what he's doing with Zuko is he's he has kind of given up hope for himself and what he can do for the Fire Nation. But he thinks if what I can do is instill what I've learned and, and a different set of values into my nephew, then that might save our nation and might save the world, you know? So 
I get it. It's easy to say, well, that he's a war criminal and this and that. And, and you can certainly take that perspective. We don't know what he did. We haven't uh, outlined what his deeds in battle. But I do like to believe that even amongst that conflict, he was not a ruthless, brutal, you know, killer. I think he was trying to win so that he could bring a swift end to the war. I think that was his yeah. goal was to end this. You know, I don't mm. think he loved the conflict. He was just trying to end it so that there could be an end to the fighting. But anyways, I just think it's, you feel that and it's because of who Mako was and the incredible actor he was that he could impart that life experience and hard earned mm. wisdom and People like Tim could just give him such great things to say. I mean, every time I hear something <laughs> Iroh says, I'm like, what a wise person, you know? And it's like, oh, I came out of our <laughs> writer's room, you know? Stop it, Uncle. I have to do this. I'm begging you, Prince Zuko. It's time for you to look inward and begin asking yourself the big questions. Who are you? And what do you want? Listen, you were saying this. You, I know that what you're saying is true, but there is a cognitive dissonance for me and for, I guarantee you, most of the people listening to this podcast right now. You could tell me that Tim wrote a bunch of viral lines. That's fine. On some level, I accept that. On another level, I 100% don't accept that. Like in some some part of me is like, that's fine. But like Ira was a real person. He absolutely said all the things he said. Like, I don't know why you're trying to like give credit to Tim or whatever. Shout out to Tim. We all know he's great. But I can't. And I almost feel like as much as we teased him and Tim teases back, I do feel like he does talk about the flow as you two, as all of us talk about the flow when we're doing, when we're making art. And you have, both of you, our two dads, have said many times on the podcast that the characters begin to write themselves and that they take on a life and that that is what makes a show work is that you, they become real to you. And we were just talking about that with Elsa and with Angie, right? Is that as they're drawing characters uh, that they're doing, uh, whether it's on the show or elsewhere, that they become real people. And so, yes, it might be technically from the brain of a person, but if that character is so alive to the people writing him, it kind of still is just him because it's that flow. It's like, well, now he's telling me what he would say just as much as I'm telling yeah. him what to say, you know? Well, even in the recording sessions, when I would prep for recording sessions, when I prepped the script, um, this is for every series practically, you hear the actor's voice in your head once you've done a couple of episodes. I, I literally cannot imagine anyone else's voice being um, Iroh. It so much was what Maka brought to it. And and all this information that you're telling us, Brian, that we did or did not know at the time when we were recording this history and where he came from, I don't know how much of that information we actually gave to Mako in advance of recording, but everything he did fits in with what you were saying, which yeah. speaks not only to the writing, but to the, uh, the performer. He just found a depth to this character that we had not really given to him yet. We hadn't told him. I mean, I don't believe you sent him any kind of a Bible that told him his history and what his you know, family was like. I don't know if that was ever done for him or any of the actors, but he made everything that was thrown at him organic and real and made it seem like he was coming up with those lines. Not that somebody was giving him lines, but rather yes. that he was coming up with those lines. 
And now we look at Mako's own life. And of course, I'm not part of his family and I didn't know him at all. And Dante, you know, I don't want to misspeak. I know you obviously had such a, a wonderful relationship with him as you were growing up in the business. But now we know we look at his past. It's like, you know, he was separated from his parents because a war was going on and he was with right. his grandmother. And, she, you know, look, here we have this second generation. Like, it's not your direct parent. It's this other person who's sort of bringing you into through your childhood. And then you get reunited with family members. And all of that is, you know, I'm sure he was pulling from his own history, as many of us do, again, as artists, as writers, any kind of artist, you can't help but infuse what you're doing with your life experience. If you're really close to the project, right. and if you care enough, um, that's just going to come through. And I feel like we've now we're sort of seeing his own life being so rich, and not simple, you know, especially as a kid. Interesting parallels. Really yeah. interesting parallels. It's like that classic case where it's like the perfect actor and the perfect role come together right. and becomes right. an all time class. I mean, Uncle Iroh's the goat. He's like the greatest of all time. It was like one of the, <laughs> of the best, you know? And so for, <gasps> for myself, including for a lot of the audience, so I just think it's one of those great things where the right actor and the right, the right story, the right character, and, and it's just beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. And Greg played tribute to that. I mean, you know, his job, Baldwin. as he's been very public about, was to just carry it on and, and honor that performance and that voice in every way possible, to just live inside of that space and in, in tribute and in honor and of, of done amazing. you know, how would Mako have done this? You know, I right. love that he, you know, has been very vocal about saying, like, I'm not going to sing the song. That's not, I just don't, <laughs> I don't want to. And I'm not going to do that. Mm -hmm. That wasn't me. That mm -hmm. wasn't me. And it and it shouldn't be me. Um, I think that's very, very honorable. I wanted to see if you had any other kind of Mako specific memories that we didn't get a chance to talk about yet. And if not, would love to hear those. And then would also love to hear if any of you had a chance to kind of we talked about like Lao Guy, we've talked about a few different Iroh moments. But if there are any more that spring to mind for you, this is a great time to talk about those as well. Yeah, I mean, those were the big moments that I, performance-wise for him, you know, and and like, yeah, I, I didn't, the only times I met him were, were in those, you know, records briefly coming in and out, but he was always just like, you just got a warm vibe from him. He was just so friendly, so professional, like we said, and just a really nice spirit and a nice dude. And uh, it, the fact that like, we're still talking about him years later, like, he, you know, he's left a very sizable impact on his community on us on actors in general i think and certainly the avatar community so. absolutely you said he passed away at what age how old was he 72 only 72 God, so young remarkable to speak to what you just said mike that he left such a mark and that's a relatively young age yeah. to die at and yet there was such um elegance to his performance and, and to his being. You know, he, he would walk in and, and he kind of commanded respect without having to actually do anything. He, he didn't have an ego about it. He didn't expect it. But yeah. you, you felt like you were speaking to a, a, a venerable, an elder, someone who had tremendous life experience and wisdom. And, and yet what surrounded him was an energy of kindness. You know, he just, he, he didn't seem like he had a mean bone in his body. He could act that if necessary, but he just, he had talent and compassion and kindness. And I, I have always felt fortunate to have had the, the time I did with him. Wonderful. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the thing about Mako, when I think back about him, 
you know, as Uncle Iroh, he he kind of helped grow up this Avatar community, watching him. And of course, he grew up Zuko as Uncle Iroh. And when I think about him in my life, it's like as my own personal Uncle Iroh, he kind of grew me up mm. in, in a professional way, working with him throughout the years. And even in his passing, as I started to open other doors and understanding because he's this legendary, like we all know in the Asian American community, especially it's like he's one, one of the most prolific, he's a legendary actor. And then when, after he passed away, when I realized, oh my God, you know, I used to play my uncle, my father, I, I grew up with him. Then I realized I'm in that lineage of these actors and that it was like him speaking to the grave, like, hey, it's not about you anymore. Not just about you anymore. It's about <laughs> other things. And so there's no other Asian actor like I mean him and I've, I've been fortunate to know him and James Hong for many years and to be able to work with them throughout the years and for them as a younger Asian actor to look up to these guys and start to understand like oh I see what you guys have done for yourselves and for us and now I see what I have to do and so he just kind of grew me up in that way it, without him even knowing yeah. just through his own grace and presence and career and just touching in with me whenever he could and it's something I, you know, I definitely hold as something very special. And so, you know, I'm a part of Mako's legacy. Grace is 100%. a good word to yeah. describe him. Grace. That's a beautiful word. Well, and now when I do cons with you, you know, I see people from the Asian American community come up and say, thank you for producing Asian American movies. Thank you for, you know, speaking at colleges. Like, thank you for carrying that on. And, you know, that's one of the things I think is so extraordinary about the East West players is, you know, Hollywood can very much, A, turn you into the worst version of yourself if you let it, if you let yourself be that competitive person. And it sort of, it the implication, if not direct statement of Hollywood is, hey, there aren't a lot of roles for Asian Americans, so you better get yours and make sure right. no one else does because that's their, your, that's, you know, your role that that person is potentially taking away from you, especially when they're scarce. And so the person who says, wait a minute, Forget that. Like, I don't that's awful. I want to create a community in which we are creating opportunities for each other and we are making more roles and making more right. stuff and showing people that I don't care, Hollywood, what you say. I don't care if you're making me feel like I should walk into a room with act a bunch of other actors and go, you're my competition, you're my competition, you're my competition. Why do that when you can walk into a room and say, hey, it's my community from the theater I built with my own two hands right. and my heart. You know, right. I'm looking at all of my colleagues. I'm not looking at my competition. That's exactly. to me the best possible way to create a legacy and to make a balance for yourself in a very competitive business. You know what I mean? That's perfectly Absolutely. Clear. Well said. <laughs> Um, okay, so I just want to give some shout outs to some folks on social media who do have some very specific Iroh quotes in mind uh, that they love. You know, they always spend time talking about them when we're covering the episodes. But um, on Instagram, at just me on a sailboat, loves uh, perfection and power overrated. I think you're very wise to choose happiness and love. Um, they say that's such a beautiful quote because love is always the answer. And we have some people who love the comedy. We have uh, on Instagram at Gwenny Bear says that uh, they're a huge fan of, no, she's crazy and she needs to go down. And we all know that he's talking about Azula <laughs> when that is not necessarily the answer anybody's expecting. Such a right. great line. You want to read the next one, uh, Dante, from Twitter with these guys, yeah. these three guys? Yeah, from at Farscopius and at Ann Fernie Fuzzy and at NB1316. They all loved for me, I think it would be his advice to Aang. Sometimes life is like this dark tunnel. You can't always see the light at the end of the tunnel. 
But if you just keep moving, you will come to a better place. And that line has unexpectedly struck a chord with love all that. those people. Yeah, I love that. And we just talked about this one recently on Twitter at Last Podcast. We said, Prince Zuko, pride is not the opposite of shame, but its source. True humility is the only antidote to shame. That really sticks with me. That's something I could definitely have sitting, you know, uh, on a mirror or just like next to my bed when I wake up in the morning. Yeah. Like that's that's a really, really, really good one. Um, thank you so much for this time, for taking this time. I think this will be a beautiful episode and people will really love to have spent that time talking about Mako. So yeah, thanks, thank everybody. You so much. For doing thank that. you. Thanks for having thank me. Thank you. And it was great to see you again. Nice Andrea. to see everybody. Yeah, truly nice to see you guys. All right, everybody, thank you so much for listening to Avatar Braving the Elements. And hey, make sure to subscribe, follow, leave us a review. All of that really helps the podcast so much. And we love you guys. Next week, we're back to recaps with our friend, writer McGizzy Pensano, as we dive into The Guru. You can follow me on social media at The JV Club on Instagram and at Janet Varney on Twitter. And I'm at Dante Bosco on both of those. We'll see you next Tuesday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.